Please join me in a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for this book, that it contains the wonders of your salvation. I thank you also for your Holy Spirit, whose presence is here in this place. I pray that you would help me preach, and for each one of us, Lord, that you would give us reason to sing a song of joy for your salvation. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Every single person in this room who's an adult or a teenager has already gotten a spiritual formation. It's kind of like your clothes smelling like smoke if you've stood near a campfire. You can't avoid it. Just by being there, you pick up stuff. And in this life, you get spiritual formation, regardless of intentionality. You are formed spiritually. And by spiritual formation, I mean a fairly all-encompassing thing. So that would include a worldview, your answer to the question of what's the meaning of life, your guess at what is broken in this world and what are the solutions to that brokenness. Your spiritual formation includes your hope for the future. What is your picture of perfection? If all the problems were solved, what would it look like? Your spiritual formation also includes your sense of self. Who are you? Your identity. And What are your personal values? To whom or to which group do you belong? Who is your community? All of this is part of your spiritual formation. So is your morality. What is right and wrong? What are good things to do and what are bad things to do? And then what are the habits that you've developed? All of this, every single person in here, I don't know, I'm not going to split hairs as to what the age is, but at some point you have spiritually been formed. And you have some thoughts about all of those things. They're there whether you choose to think about them or not. You have been spiritually formed. And I wonder, what is your spiritual formation? Who are you? How do you answer those kind of questions? And how was it that you got to the place where you are? Looking back over my life, I realized that I basically grew up in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. No joke. I had had this idyllic childhood Um, I grew up in this suburb of Pittsburgh. The little town was called Crescent Hills. My house butted up to a park. Quite literally, I could walk out the back door at the age of five and cut across the softball field to the basketball court and never have to cross a street or deal with traffic. In my backyard was this park, and it was the center of Crescent Hills. And all of the kids all summer long would just come to the park at nine in the morning and stay till four. And there was a park supervisor paid by some civic dues, the houses paid, who opened up a closet that was full of sports equipment, and we could just play games all day. Sometimes the supervisor would organize a game, other times not. The kids would make their own games. It was an idyllic place to grow up. Only one of my friends had divorced parents. Everyone else's marriage was intact. I had not really even known of divorce, and it was incredible. Um, The school that I went to was a Christian school all the way through eighth grade. I had no idea what was out in the world. The park, as we called it, was so perfect. And in fact, kids would go to this Christian camp, which is an amazing Christian camp called Summer's Best Two Weeks. And when one of the group went to Summer's Best Two Weeks, we all pitied him and felt bad for him that he was missing out on two weeks at the park. So imagine my shock when in ninth grade, I went to public high school and realized not everybody lives in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. I had been formed with these ideas of how the world is supposed to go, and it was not anything like that. The world was really broken, and there were messy lives, and there were all kinds of problems, and there were different answers to those questions of the meaning of life, which pointed me then to the Lord. 
Now, that's part of my own spiritual formation, but what was yours like? Think about it. How were you shaped? What were your experiences? But you were formed. There's no one in here who's a blank slate. And I say that because one of our core values as a church is in a series on liturgy is that we are formed through three strands woven together as a cord. This is part of the great tradition of Christian worship, that we are a people, when we gather, we are a people of the word and the spirit and the sacraments. There are different ways to say these three things, but when we come, we break bread together, word and sacrament, and we invite the Holy Spirit to come. And those three strands are woven together into a really strong cord. And our values statement says, we call it three-strand worship is a value, and it says we are formed through the scripture, the spirit, and the sacraments, or the sacred. And it could be better said we are reformed, because we've already been formed, as I've said, and we need to be reformed. We need to tell a new story. Are there things in your life that need to be reformed? Are you aware of these things? My preaching text today is Psalm 98, and it starts out by saying, sing a new song to the Lord. A person who's being nudged by the Holy Spirit welcomes this call. We welcome the need to be reformed. We're eager for it. We've grown tired. Have you heard yourself ever say, I'm sick and tired of feeling sick and tired? You know, I'm just kind of weary. The Southwest Airlines made a pretty strong marketing campaign with their want to get away theme. They took somebody's life and something bad happens, and then the commentator says, want to get away? The answer is, of course I do. And they want you to buy a cheap airplane ticket and fly somewhere else. The problem is, when you get on a plane and go somewhere else, what goes with you? You. You go with you. How do you get away from your own self? How do you escape that old, tired song your life's been singing? We need a new song. And the psalm says, sing a new song. I'm tired of myself sometimes. I'm tired of my old song. This is the theme in Romans chapter 7 when the Apostle Paul says, I do the very thing that I don't want to do. You know, I, with my mind I serve God, but in the flesh I serve myself, and I'm torn. I'm this broken sinner. And he comes to this conclusion and says, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And then he praises Jesus, who is the Savior. This idea of being caught in a rut and needing to be saved is what this psalm is picking up. When I was um, in college, there was a song that came out uh, by Tom Petty, and it had this line in it that has stuck with me for a long time. He says, I'm tired of screwing up. I'm tired of going down. I'm tired of myself, and I'm tired of this town. Now, his answer to that is, you got to keep moving on. And he sings about moving on. And the video is haunting and awful, and it's totally not a solution to the problem. But he's tired. He's tired of the old story. He's looking for a new song. There's another band in that same era that was, um, they have a distinctive sound to them and kind of a similar vocal, similar guitar, similar drums. And in their presence one time, they were accused of making the exact same album 12 times. And they fought back and they said, that's a lie. We've made the exact same album 13 times. And now I think it's 17. That was back then. But they make a lot of the same sound. They're, they're making the same exact sound. So if you like one song, you like all their songs. And if you don't like one song, you hate all their songs. We're kind of like that. We're one-hit wonders. We've got one tune that we're singing. Are you tired of your song? Into such ruts, there comes inspiration, actually. 
And my main point today is that God gives inspiration for new songs. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at three new songs in the scriptures. I'm going to expound Psalm 98, but it's going to point us to some things that God has done and that people in scripture have actually sung new songs because of what God has done. And then I'm going to give you a fourth song that's from church history that you all know. It's about 150 years old. So three songs from the scripture and one from church history, all based on Psalm 98. But if you will, turn with me to Psalm 98. Let's start with this psalm. It's, uh, I think it's page 500 in your Bible. Oddly, it's page 600 in my Bible. So, Psalm 98. There are only nine verses in this psalm, and there's a space after verse 3 and after verse 6. So, the verses are broken into little groups of three. And if I was to summarize the whole psalm in those groups, I would say the first thing is the first three verses are about God's salvation. The second three verses are calling the entire created order, everyone, to praise him as the king. And the third is speaking to the inanimate order, the creation itself, the trees, the land, the rivers, to sing praises to God. And it comes to the conclusion that he's going to return to judge the earth in righteousness. So the song is broken down into those three big groups. The first verse starts out by saying, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Now, let me pause there. You know, in this church, we preach Christ and him crucified. We try to preach Christ-centered sermons. We believe this whole book is about Jesus. But I can't just jump to the cross from that because the Psalms were written way before the cross happened. So what might this psalmist be talking about as this salvation, this, these marvelous things he has done, how his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him? What might he be pointing to? He's talking about the Exodus where God has rescued his people out of 400 years of slavery. You'll remember the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were made known by God that their, their descendants would be enslaved for 400 years, and then God would bring them out of slavery into a promised land. This happened through the leadership of Moses when God raised Moses up. And it's that idea of the right hand being the strong hand, and with God's strong right arm, he's delivered his people. And after they go through the Red Sea, the sea closes in over Pharaoh's chariots and army. You'll remember the story. God did a number of signs in Pharaoh's presence saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh just hardened his heart and hardened his heart until finally the last sign was the Passover night where the angel of death passed over every house that had the blood of the atoning sacrifice on its doorposts and anything that didn't suffered a death in their household. And in doing so, God instituted the Passover for the Jews, which became the Passover for Christians on the cross. But what happens once they go through is Moses sings a song. It's actually written in the, in the Bible, versified like a psalm. It's, it's Exodus 15, and the ESV heading calls it the Song of Moses. Moses is singing a new song because God has done something he's never done in the history of the world. He parted the Red Sea. He brought an entire nation of people, like 100,000 people, through there. And then when Pharaoh's army chased them, he flooded and drowned them all in judgment. So I'm not going to read you the whole song, but Moses' song says this, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. 
Moses is singing this song because he's witnessed God come in and save them. Moses didn't save them. They certainly didn't save themselves. These were slaves for four centuries. And now God has stepped up to save them. He says a little later in the song, You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard and they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. You've heard of the Philistines. The Philistines heard what happened and they were afraid. All of the earth heard of God's good deeds. That's what he meant to do through the Israelites is he wanted all the earth to realize how great he was as a savior and is as a savior. Moses sings a song to that end. Now, I want you to fast forward a little bit, go a little, little bit further in, in, in the history of salvation. By the last book of the Old Testament until the Gospels of the New Testament, there was a 400-year period of utter silence. Heaven had gone silent. There was no prophet in Israel. The people were longing for God to interact with them in some new way. And the angel Gabriel comes to a virgin betrothed to be married in a town and says, you will give birth to the Son of God. And when Mary hears this, she quotes Psalm 98 in her famous song called the Magnificat. It's in Luke chapter 1, and she picks up Psalm 98 verse 3, which says this. Psalm 98 verse 3 says, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. But when you jump over to Luke and you take a look at what, he, what she says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He hasn't forgotten what he promised to Abraham to create a people, to create a, a, a people that would bless all the peoples of the earth. He's not forgotten this. It might feel like it because you've waited 400 years, but he has not forgotten. He's doing something. And when this new bit of revelation came, Mary writes a song, the Magnificat. She praises God and she sings about how he has saved and brought salvation and has not forgotten his promises. It's a powerful song. Now, Psalm 98 is part of a triad of psalms. If you, if you flip back and look at Psalm 96, it's almost the same thing. It starts out saying, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. It ends by saying he'll judge the earth with righteousness. In the middle, it tells all people to worship him. And it tells the created order to do the same. Let the heavens be glad. Let the sea roar. Let the field exalt. Let the trees of the forest sing for joy. It's very similar to Psalm 98. And there's this triad of 96, 97, and 98. And right in the middle, there's a problem. In 97, there's a big problem. It says the in 97, Psalm 97, the Lord reigns. Let all the earth rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And we think, great, right? I want a righteous and just king to sit on the throne and judge all the nations out there. Except there's a problem with that. Who am I to escape judgment? Who are you? The judgment is coming. And it says in the next verse, fire goes before him and burns up all his adversaries all around and then at the last two verses, it says, light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Well, I know the song that my heart, my old heart sings. It's not upright. It's not good. I'm not righteous. What's going to happen? Is this fire going to consume me? We have this major problem. But Mary's song tells us the solution. God has not left us in that problem. He sent his Savior. It points to the cross where Christ is going to die for us. And as Paul says, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. 
where he takes our sin and we get his righteousness. So when this righteous judge comes to, to judge the whole earth, all those who trust in Christ will be spared and will rejoice. So we're praying, come Lord, come and judge and bring all people into this gift. The Magnificat, Mary's song, is about how he's remembered his mercy and he's helped his people. Now there's a final song, a third song I'd like to tell you about today, and it makes me think in, in Psalm 98 of verse 9, before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and his peoples with equity. Picture a judge seated on a throne. I'm jumping all the way back to the first reading we had today from Revelation chapter 5. The Apostle John gets a vision of the heavenly throne room. Have you ever had a dream that is so graphic when you try to explain it to somebody you just can't? And you keep saying, it was kind of like, it was kind of like all the streets were covered in gold. And it was like a lot of fire. And it was really colorful, but it was really bright. But it wasn't, you just can't do it. So that's what he's trying to do here. So he's using symbols and numbers to try to communicate something that words fail to communicate. But he gives a picture of the throne room. And there's a song that everyone there is singing. And then there's a new song that they sing because of the great Passover of the Son of God dying on the cross. And what is happening here is in the dream, there are these scrolls that are being unfolded. And all of history is on these scrolls. And we all want to know what's going to happen. We're all hoping for the future to be good, to be fixed and redeemed. And, and it says that an angel said, who can open the scroll? And no one was found, it says, in heaven or on earth or below the earth. There was no one worthy to open the scroll. And John, the apostle who's writing this, starts to weep. He's overcome because who's going to open the scroll? There's no one worthy. And then an angel says, don't weep. For behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. He is worthy to open the scroll. And you turn thinking, ah, there's going to be a big lion. And instead it says, when I looked, this is um, verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among all the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is a lamb that was slain but he's standing because he's alive. He was killed, but he's resurrected and ascended. He's there in the center of the throne, and he's worthy to open up the scroll and unfold all of the future, all of history. He is the redeemer. He's the one who's able to set it all right. And it says, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. See, their old song was this. This is the end of chapter four. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive power and honor and glory. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. They'd been singing, God, you're awesome because you created everything. But now they're about to sing a new song. The song is this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This salvation is gone out further than just Israel. It's gone to all peoples. And even further than that, it's gone to the very inanimate creation. That when this happens, when Christ returns, when everything is put right, even the very trees will sing for joy. The rivers will clap their hands. The, the, the fields will exalt in God. It will be this picture of everything put right. This is an incredible song, this new song that they're singing. It's inspirational. I know many of you, like me, feel 
close to God when you hike in the woods, when you walk in the wilderness, or when you're out on the water. You, you, you just feel connected to him in some way, and you think, this is majestic. That's the broken version. Imagine what it's going to be like when God renews it completely, when there's nothing wrong with the created order. There is no more death. I don't know. Maybe it's even literal. Maybe the trees will sing for joy. I don't know. I know it's going to be great, though. This is an incredible song. Now, there's one more song I want to tell you about from church history that you know well, and we're coming into the season when we're going to sing it a lot. It's the hymn that Isaac Watt wrote. Uh, Isaac Watts wrote the, the words to it, and the melody is borrowed from uh, Handel's Messiah. It's the song, Joy to the World. It was based on Psalm 98. He took this psalm, and he turned the words around a little bit, and he made what we call a Christmas hymn, but it really isn't just about Christmas. This is any time. And, and he, he talks about um, you know the song, Joy to the World, Let Every Heart Prepare Him Room, and Heaven and Nature Sing. Not just he- the heavenly host singing the new song, even nature singing the song. And another, uh, when fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains are supposed to repeat the joy of the people. Romans 8 says that the creation is longing for you and I to be revealed as the sons and daughters of God, that, that when things are put right, then the creation will be put right as well. And it's groaning under the sin of our rebellion, waiting for that to be fixed. And so, joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. As we sing our new song out, it says, let the fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. They will join in the praise of the people of God. The whole creation will be worshiping him. He rules the world with grace and truth. And we come to the end of the psalm, and we see that he's sitting on that throne, judging the peoples with equity and righteousness. And he does it because of the cross. Now, how do you sing this new song? I mean, it's inspirational, right? To think about God, who has, he's brought the people out of slavery through a miracle through the Red Sea. He has incarnated the Son of God with the Virgin Mary, the incarnation. He's come among us. He became flesh and dwelt in our midst. And then he's gone to the cross, defeated sin and death and the devil, and then ascended and is opening up all of history and will return. These are incredible things to sing about. It's inspirational. How do you do it? Well, in a series called The Work of the People Liturgy, we're part of this great tradition that uses a pattern and a format of worship where we are rehearsing God's saving deeds Sunday by Sunday and over the yearly calendar. December 1st starts Advent. The church's calendar resets then, and we start looking at the coming of Christ, his second coming, which is to happen still, and his first coming, which happened 2,000 years ago. We tell the story through the colors, through the readings, through the liturgy, the different things we do. We are rehearsing his deeds. So we recount his deeds with joy. Another thing you can do is give him kingship. In verse 6, it says, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, capital K, the king, not A, the king. You know, God actually thinks he's not just the king of Israel or the king of the church, he thinks he's the king of the universe, and he is. And he's inviting all people to come under his lordship and all aspects of their life. So is there a part of your life that has not come under his new song? You're still singing that old part of that old tune. Bring it under his lordship. Declare him king of that. His kingdom exists wherever his reign and rule are recognized. Is there an aspect of your life where he's not the king? Make him the king. And then finally, tell yourself, I am a new creation. 
The Apostle Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and behold, the new has come. God is doing a new thing in the lives of those who believe in Jesus. Remind yourself, I'm a new creation. This is part of my old nature. I I get rid of that old song. I'm singing a new song now. Are you tired of your old song? I want to invite you to start singing his. Let's pray. Lord, you've done incredible things, and we have them recorded in in the Bible. I thank you for those things. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come now and breathe your breath, your life into us. Heal us, Lord. Reform us. Help us to be the men and women and kids that you desire us to be. You are our Savior, Lord, and we need your help. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.